Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 460, featuring Vikal Parekh, who is a really interesting. He is a creative director and founder at Attaboy Studios. Now, before I get into the details of uh, Vikal's uh, episode, I want to first apologize that I did not put an episode out last week. I've actually been working on a huge project, uh, and the schedule just did not uh, allow that to happen. But I want to let you guys know that this is something really big that I'm very excited about. This is arguably one of the biggest projects I've ever worked on, especially at Chaos. Uh, and it is all part of the Innovation Lab. Uh, in fact, Vlado was here all week last week, and uh, we spent the whole week together working on this, and it's a big deal. Uh, and just to give you guys a little bit of a teaser, uh, it involves uh, real-time, it involves uh, ray tracing, and it involves filmmaking. So lots of really great stuff going on there. Uh, and I'm very excited to talk about it as you go along. So I'm giving you guys a little bit of teaser every week to let you know more what's going on. Another thing I wanted to guys let you know that this is actually a collaboration that I'm working on with my guys uh, at Martini Giant. You guys know Martini Giant is another uh, is my other podcast that I do with my good friends uh, Daniel Thrawn and Eric Sheely. And uh, we've come up with some stuff that we're working on with Chaos uh, Innovation Lab. And this is all sort of working together, which is super, super exciting. Uh, okay, so you'll hear more about that as uh, time goes on, but I just want to give you guys a little teaser and, of course, an apology for the week late on the podcast. But uh, Vikal is great. Uh, it was really cool to have him on this podcast and to talk about his background. He actually has a similar background to me. He comes from architecture, uh, and uh, he had his architecture education around the same time as me, so he came into the CG portion of that around the same time, so it was really kind of interesting to hear his perspective on that. Uh, he did uh, turn that into a career in advertising and CG as well, uh, and it was great to understand how his architecture career helped solve some of the creative things and some of the problem-solving sc skills that he developed along the way. Uh, really, really cool. Obviously, uh, advertising has changed a long time since I was involved in doing advertising. And so I want to ask him more of those questions, especially in a world where social media seems to be the prominent platform for advertising today. Uh, and just the concept of what it's like to do a six second ad and how do you get your point across and those types of things. So really cool to see that. So thanks, Kyle, for coming on and telling us all about it. Uh, okay, got a couple of announcements uh, in terms of our products. You can go to chaos.com for that. Uh, Vantage 2 Update 2, I mentioned that a few times, is out. It includes displacement and hair and fur. It is a great, great product, and it is vital to the project I'm working on right now. Uh, so I'm very excited to announce that. So make sure to check that out. We also have V-Ray 6 Update 2 for SketchUp and Rhino that includes updates for V-Ray for Grasshopper. Now, if you guys want to know more about those products, of course, you just go to uh, chaos.com. In terms of events, we have many events that are uh, listed right now. Just go to chaos.com slash events. One event that I do want get to you, get you guys to know about is Chaos Unboxed uh, Live, which is happening on February 27th. Uh, and that's going to be a live event online, but there's going to actually be some in-person events as well. If you want to know more details about Chaos Unboxed and be, get announcements and updates on the subject, just go to chaos.com slash unboxed. Again, that is chaos.com slash unboxed. Now, in terms of the podcast, if you guys want to follow that, you can always go to our podcast page, which is YouTube. Sorry, chaos.com slash CG Garage. And of course, our social media page is facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast. 
If you'd like to watch this podcast, all of our videos are posted at youtube.com slash chaosgrouptv, including the podcast. And if you'd like to have suggestions of podcasts like this one, which was actually a suggestion as well, you can always email us labs at chaos.com. But for now, please enjoy episode number 460 with Vikal Parikh. Welcome to another CG Garage, where the chaos group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays in high dynamic range. We know that ambient occlusion is passe. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell, you need to make sure everything has for now. Uh, okay, Vikal, thank you so much for, for being on. I really appreciate uh, your time. And, uh, you know, obviously you've got some fabulous work that we want to talk about. Uh, but what what I always love to start these podcasts is, is find out a little bit of people's origin stories. You know, what, where, where, where did you where did you get the bug to do the kind of things you do and, and, and work with with uh, videos and images and graphics and animation and all of those things? What, what was some of the things that inspired you in the beginning? Oh, man. Uh, so that really like dates back to my, uh, you know, really education in architecture and oh, yeah? really, uh, you know, inspired by light and uh, inspired by composition and inspired by negative spaces. And, you know, really like it wasn't a it was more of the design aspect of architecture that attracted me uh in the beginning and then it was just about the time when uh visualization in architecture was starting to happen using like 3d max and you know people who are producing these about the, the mid 90s or so like that mid yeah mid late mid to late 90s uh, and it was really fascinating at the time where you're like, oh, man, like these designs that, you know, we have on paper, we could actually like fly through and move around. So essentially that that's really what led to my discovery of, you know, how to incorporate uh, moving images. And did know, you learn and, the, those, those those specific CG skills? Did you learn them in, in architecture school or, or did you sort of pick them yeah, up? Yeah, so them? I started learning. I started learning them in architecture school. There was no YouTube back then, so it was really right. hard to learn. Um, you know, so it was like literally lunch hour was like a big tick, like Maya or 3D Max, like book that you would like go through, uh, you know, try to troubleshoot uh, things or learn new techniques. Uh, and everything was fairly new. So I, I don't think like there were educators that were as experienced as there are now. Yep. So everyone was, whoever was comfortable in the software was, you know, teaching and they were figuring things out like, as they went along. So really a lot of self-discovery, but that's really what drew me into it. You know, like for me, it was like, oh, this is sort of like a territory where people are not really familiar with what to do. And I'm really interested in it. Maybe this, you know, this could be a way of self-expression and figuring out how to translate my design. So I went to Savannah College of Art and Design in uh, Savannah, Georgia, yeah. uh, to do my master's in fine arts. And, uh, you know, there, it was great. The program was computer art, and uh, we didn't really have uh, a specialty we had to choose. So, you know, we did a little bit of filmmaking, a little bit of motion design, a little bit of sound design. Uh, so it really got us into all aspects of uh 
moving images, so to speak. Uh, now, the first time. were you, so, so when you, 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 I mean, obviously you started with the, the architecture. I, by the way, I have a very similar background. I was also an architecture person and was yeah. ended up having, because no one else knew it, I ended up having to teach the classes as well. So I, I know kind of. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, what moved you away from, 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 from architecture? Did you actually practice architecture or did you write, go straight from architecture school to, to, to uh, Savannah? So I did practice architecture for a few years mm -hmm. um, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, and I still like doing like, you know, the left and right side of the brain where sure. you're working with materials and working with, you know, our engineering, like how things fit together. Uh, I think the pace was a little slow for me okay. to see the designs materialize. And, you know, I would have been okay with it in the long term. I just with this computers and graphics, I was like, oh, we can make this and see what it looks like right away with the right material and don't have to wait for, you know, execution. So like that, that really drew me into wanting to learn this more. And, uh, I, you know, I like terribly, influ I'm like very influenced by a lot of, you know, organic architecture, like Calatrava engineering or, uh, you know, uh, Zaha Hadid's architecture, yep. that's very organic. So just to try to get that beyond the sketch phase, like just you have to sort of do it, a computer visualization, you know, there's no other alternative to that. So right. I think, yeah, that eventually led me to, uh, you know, and by the way, there was no term like motion design or like there was nothing of that nature, right. uh, you know. Um, so yeah and then you know movies like matrix and <laughs> you're just like yeah this is what i want to do so what were i mean that's interesting i mean the things that sort of seemed to inspire you at that time were were, were things like like zaha hadid and the matrix right that was kind of an interesting yeah. combination right yeah yeah and you know i think it's sort of this dystopian world you know but like there's still like you know people are existing within that world and it's similar to ours but you can see that we are leading towards that and we could take a turn for the better or worse uh, so yeah i think like those sort of uncertainties in uh, you know the future i think that really helped me uh, and also like being into music and stuff i you know i feel like just progressive art and uh animation i was never exposed to animation as a child like you know as opposed just from besides watching movies like there was not i didn't know a single animator or anyone that worked you know in that industry to be influenced by a person um so yeah i think when i was when i came to savannah i was like "Ooh, this is fantastic and what was i mean what was your first i mean obviously i mean speaking as someone who also went through an architecture thing i was sort of obsessed with the the visualization the lighting the composition but animation is like a completely different part of the brain like how did you think about addressing that part of it when you were starting to think about it at, at savannah uh yeah, so at Savannah, we like I said, we did a lot of generalizations, mm -hmm. you know. So, like visual effects was, you know, something that came easily, like in terms of photography, sure. you know, being interested in that, like that sort of, I like, kind of got the concept of it. Uh, but it's just like, you know, skeletons for animated uh, sort of objects. And, mm -hmm. uh, oh, I got a thumbs up. Uh, <laughs> skeletons for animated objects uh, or like making them move or, you know, proportions that are not normal. Like just having the ability to be able to rig that and animate it, you know, for characters. I think that that was something that, 
was a challenge at first for sure. me, you know, like just like having no experience in traditional animation. Um, that was definitely a challenge. But again, like when, you know, in the younger years, like you kind of want to learn it all and you want to know, you know, and we were so entrenched and that's the beauty of, you know, going to a small town like Savannah was like, there's really not much to do else, you know, like, yes, it's a great, beautiful tourist destination, but you're living there, there's not much going on. So, you know, you sort of just immerse yourself within the program you're in and, you know, try to learn as much as you can. And, you know, really everyone was very encouraging at that school. So no one ever said like, oh, you're terrible, you know, don't try. <laughs> sure, like, you know, no. they're very, very... I mean, I, when I got there, I had never opened After Effects. I right. knew Photoshop to a very basic level. And there were kids there that were just like, they knew the software inside out. And, you know, but that just made me want to work harder and learn, you know, things that uh, were different. So what what did yeah. you feel your strengths were when you walked into that school? You know, having your background you did, did you feel you had a certain strength that, 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 you, that was part of your personality? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, because of my background, I automatically felt like visualizing space mm -hmm. and distance um, was really something that came very easily to me. Sure. Uh, you know, and like you're trying to visualize a space or, you know, design a space or design an environment. Um, you know, obviously all these softwares translate real world parameters, right? So like a foot would be like 20 pixels or whatever. Right. So yeah. Uh, and we were so used to working like that, you know, making models in architecture. So, you know, for me, um, when you're making a cube for a character to live in, you know, for me, it was really easy. Like, yeah, this seems like a perfect size. And there's no method to that madness. It was, just came from practice. Right. You know, that this object could house, could be housed in something this big and that just very natural. And that also translates now, you know, to whether it's like building sets for, you know, live action production yep. or like miniatures, uh, you know, I'm able to conceive scale and conceive, uh, uh, you know, sort of these, you know, models that are being made, whether it's like life size, double size or miniatures um, to a pretty good accuracy where like that's not a challenge for me. Yeah, I find it's interesting because well, you you and I are not alone. There are a lot of actual architects uh, who have gone into yeah, animation or done visual effects or done a lot of things in that nature. And I think it's kind of interesting how that transition happens. But what it seems to be a common trend, and I'm sure you agree, is that we have no regrets of having gone to architecture school. We think it's actually right. an extremely valuable education, even if we don't practice architecture, right? I agree. I, I think it's a very good foundational educational skill set that anyone in um, the visual communication or, you know, uh, sort of education should have. And I feel like there should be, and that's why Legos are so great. Like I have three kids and, you know, I let them play with Legos. I think like that really helps. And, right. but I think there's certain, you know, foundational skills that we learn in architectural design school that should be incorporated within a graphic design course or within a motion design course or character animation course. And I think it's exposure to sort of the different worlds that, uh, you know, you work with the foundational thing is that you work with light, you work with materials, right? you work with scale. And I mean, essentially, that's what all visual forms work with right you know i mean so you don't work with typography but you do in terms of signage so 
I think it's all uh, part of it. So I think it's a really great sort of uh, foundational skill set to have uh, going through architectural school. Right, right. I remember it was very interesting when I was when I was working as a visual effects artist, and we went to a, a bookstore, and there was a lot of architecture and art books there. And this guy who I worked in visual effects, he was opening up architecture books, and like this architecture is crazy. There's a, a fireplace in the middle of the room, and I was like wait a minute, you think that's crazy? And I introduced them to Zaha Hadid, and, I, yeah, and, yeah. and they were like, I had no idea this world existed, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and it was kind of like the surprise of like, there is so much more out there. Yeah, and like in the 90s or even like early 2000s, like there were not very many built uh, works by Zaha Hadid. No. Uh, I mean, she got Or even Frank Gehry or even those guys. Oh, Frank Gehry, yeah. 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 So they got a lot of commissions towards the end of their mm-hmm. lifespan or career, you know, and unfortunately, like, uh, it. but I, I think it took them a lifetime to get where they did. Yes. You know, it takes then just like working with scale and of different uh, institutional building. I mean, it's not an easy task. Well, there, I think it was interesting. It was a very, there's a few people who sort of saw the vision of what they did, right? And then. You needed a couple more, and then yeah. all of a sudden it became popular. Now Frank Gehry, you know, yeah. I I, I yeah. actually like the old Frank Gehry when he was doing things with chicken wire and <laughs> plywood. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when yeah, he started doing everything organic. out of titanium, yeah. it's like okay, you know, you yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's very uh, well. I mean, you have to eventually. Uh, there's a the commercial aspect of every commission art that sure. you know takes over, and I think it's. Like, don't you think, like, similarity in, like, filmmaking with, like, directors, be it, like, Spielberg? You know, it's, like, so similar. It's like, once you you reach that threshold, it's very easy to cross over. And it's very hard to, like, keep where you are because then you're not growing. You've already surpassed that sort of experimental, you know, stage. Right. You can't keep doing that all your life. I think you have to, like, cross over to mainstream. Or what you're doing becomes mainstream. And I think at that point... all bets are off. You're just yeah, you know, but I think those experimental phases where you sort of get your find your voice in some ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, play, right? play. Like yeah. You're yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's uh, no. I feel like a lot of commissioned work, and I I do feel like a lot of people you know feel the same way. Like whether being an artist or a director, like a lot of commissioned work, uh, it tends to start becoming a job sooner than you'd like it to be. Sure. Uh, you know, so like that, they're like, yeah, yeah, play around, you know, but then eventually like, yeah, but like, I was really like looking at this and like, I want this to be this. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of their money. Uh, sure. You can, you can, you know, give your spin on it or give your, you know, add your vision to it, but it's really hard to sort of get someone to be like, yeah, go run with it, do whatever you want. And yep. we are behind you. I absolutely. I think that's you know you're you you. you I mean, there's my, one of my uh, architecture history teachers tell me the best architects is a combination of architect and client, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. You yeah, need the exactly. client who can enable that vision to take place, and also guide to the architect to do because you know with a f- open slate you can't really do much either. You need a sort of a, yeah. a program to, to 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 follow. Yeah, you need a box to right. think outside of it. Yeah. You know, when you have like a blank slate or just no box, it gets very hard. Yes, absolutely. Restrictions are actually what make the best design. <laughs> exactly. So, 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. Okay, so this is interesting. So I, I love how you're sort of thinking of uh, uh, equating some of the architecture designs and, and and directing as well. So so as you you know you went through your your your, your education at at SCAD. What, where where did you go from there? Like how did this sort of develop into your career? So from SCAD, I came to New York uh, on an internship, uh, and uh, it was at this place called Edgeworks at the time that was doing a lot of broadcast design and animation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there for a period of three months, and uh, you know the plan was to see what happened. Was Next, it motion graphics uh, mainly? Or was- I mean, it was a lot of answering the phones, but yeah, essentially, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was. Uh, motion graphics, concept art. Okay. And uh, so there, there was this, uh, they were pitching this sort of TV show to MTV at the time. And they, I think they had to like produce like six or seven ideas right. uh, for a TV show over the weekend. And, uh, you know, we were interns. So they're like, hey, you know, we have 500 bucks, just come up with some ideas and, uh, you know, um, for shows. And then, you know, working with the writers and stuff, like we figured out, like designed an idea for, and one of the shows was called Room Raiders, which MTV picked up and, you know, went to run for, I don't know, like maybe like a dozen seasons or so. Um, But uh, so that Room Raiders was definitely sort of the the opening title and design for it came from the architectural background was you know these like wireframes that like become a room and you know you had to like go through and see like certain parts so the concept of the show was that you have a guy and a girl or you know and the other person's in a van looking at the partner uh, go through their room with uh, a blue light or you know it's like pretty collegiate stuff but sure i think the idea <laughs> discover something about a person right and so you'd have like this 3d model that would like open up and you know reveal uh things so uh yeah so i think that was definitely a lot of architectural uh studies and uh influenced by design of like looking at blueprints and stuff that you know i uh, came up with the design and i think it was fun for a little while and then after that, you know, I discovered this uh, freelance world, and that was amazing. It was unnerving at first, but then there were like so many studios, like bustling, and you know, you could like around what year to- was this? Just to note about the bustling. Uh, year. This was like two thousand three, two thousand four. Yeah. yeah. So you had like all these like throwback and you know eyeball, and there's so many studios, and they were you were like hopping like two weeks there, two weeks there, per, and then my longest stint was with a studio called Perception, uh, and I was there for a year, uh, and then eventually uh, there was this post production place called Redcard that uh, I freelanced with, and you know I had really no idea like working in advertising what it was like. Uh, uh, I had, you know, worked as an art director at an agency for a little bit, uh, freelancing, but really the post-production side of it really uh, captured my attention. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, you know, you're, the a- agency's coming up with these comps and or ideas and, you know, directors are shooting it and you're sort of, you know, putting a graphics package or editing around it. So um, I worked at Red Car for uh, six, seven years and... Uh, we after that i decided to move on and you know start attaboy where i was able to control the narrative a little better okay. uh, in terms of uh, you know uh, what 
work we were working on and what we were doing. So it wasn't just, uh, you know, end tags and, uh, you know, just little stuff. Like I really felt the urge to be able to tell stories with, uh, you know, what what we wanted to do. So we started working with a lot of nonprofits uh, at Attaboy to be able to, uh, in the formative years at least, you know, so we could actually go in and shape the narrative and be able to tell a story that they needed to be told, but in a way that we felt was, you know, a little more uh, appropriate to our style, appropriate to our aesthetic, and, uh, you know, just even the way to tell a story. It wasn't very linear. So... Uh, yeah, that's how Attaboy came about. So, so, so describe to, uh, you know for, so for some people who may not necessarily know the the process of of how a, a project like this like it, give us an idea of the lifespan of a project. So, say say there's a someone who wants to create a piece, right? Where does Attaboy fit in? Where does the agency fit in? How does the how is the lifespan of of a of a of a piece happen? And where do you come in? <laughs> yeah, so uh, you know over the years we've evolved, but traditionally speaking you'd go to an agency uh, and this all changes from project to project, but generally uh, you have a client, Mm -hmm. uh, say client A, that's, you know, big S&P 500 client, uh, will have a contract with an ad agency that, uh, you know, you'll spend, we'll spend X amount of dollars a year, but we need X amount of content, print, online, social, whatever um, to be done. And uh, the agency has a team dedicated to working on it. So you have, you know, like, from creative directors to right. art directors, so there's a linear staff. So, like that, Toyota you know, would have a whole group of people yeah. at Saatchi that work for them, and or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's, exactly. that's the Toyota yeah. team at Saatchi, right? Saatchi, exactly. Yeah. So uh, you'd have that, and then uh, you know they come up with different concepts, and you know not everyone can do everything. So once they come up with an idea, like oh, this will be like comedy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're like, oh, there'll be a comedy spot. And then they go go out and, you know, look for a comedy director uh, that, you know, uh, sort of coincides with what uh, they have a vision or what's been sold to the client. And, uh, you know, so a comedy director, uh, you know, gets involved or maybe a lot of times it's more than one. Sure. And then they sort of want to see their interpretation of their script or the boards. And uh, so then creative what they call like a treatment, like a visual treatment. They go back and they come up with a visual treatment, which is a deck of references, photos with the script broken down really granularly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how they see this whole idea panning out. Um, and really, they, you know, the, the agency and the client will have a walkthrough and then pick a director to work with. Uh, and that's really we don't really do comedy, but essentially that's, you know, the step where Attaboy would come in. Right. Uh, we would be the, one of the companies pitching or directing. Uh, and you guys have job. directors and creatives as well. Animators, yeah. Animators. So we have directors and animators, uh, editors. Right. So essentially we started off with animation and uh, then, you know, we decided like, there's such good working relationship with the clients that we had that they're like, oh, but, you know, we have like this, it's a 20, 30 second spot, 20 seconds animated. We just need 10 seconds of a live action thing. Can you guys do it? Sure. And then like we were finding partners to do it. And then eventually we just kept working with those partners so long. We just, you know, had them over as directors. And that's really how we sort of grew our directorial roster. Um, right. So, 
Yeah, back to we direct it, uh, do the post production on it. Uh, you know, depending on the agency, they might have a preference with an editor they want to work with, or a lot of times the director has a preference of an editor they want to work with. So then, you know, you work with an editor. That editor could be an attaboy, could not be an attaboy. You know, sort of open um, dialogue at that point. And uh, yeah, we you know finish this, edit the spot, do the color, finish, and then. Uh, ship it out you know if there's any animation which at this point i think every everything has like some sort of visual effects or animation to it or clean up for the least then i think you know we the the studio at attaboy gets involved to uh, try and accomplish that so it's interesting i mean obviously you know you have a a a similar past to me but uh, uh, i did some commercials as well and back when i was doing it you know we were just getting into HD, so that just shows how long ago it was. <laughs> but it was most—it was all TV spots, right? So we had TV deliverable, yeah. and it was very s- simple. Specific. It was thirty yeah. seconds of animation that we had to deliver: yeah. yeah. seven hundred and twenty frames at twenty-four frames a second. It was just exactly. very specific of what we had to deliver, and uh, yeah. I remember that very clearly. But nowadays, it has evolved so much. There is so many. Different. How has this whole world changed with Instagram and TikTok and everything? Like, how do you, how do you guys do all these different deliverables? Yeah, so I, you know, having done this for now, like four or five years, I feel like this has been a gradual progression. Sure, uh, four or five years. So we just assume that every project that gets shot uh, has to be delivered in four different formats. A 16, 9, 9, 16, 4 by 4, 5, and then one, 5 by 4, and then 1 by 1. And so we, when we shoot it, we shoot it wider, so we have coverage. Interesting. Um, when, we, when we edit it, we you know, put like an overlay on top of it to see how every, everything fits. And then, uh, you know, maybe for 9 by 16 or, you know, 1 by 1, you might have to move the things around a little bit to like keep it in frame and be visually interesting. But for the most part, uh, we just work within a square. Interesting. And then crop it as you go. Yeah. But doesn't that leave a lot of empty spaces on the side (laughs) that you constantly. So if you work with a square, right, which is bigger than it's basically, you know, 10, uh, 1920 by 1920 square. Sure. And then, so if you want to do 1080, then you crop the top and the bottoms. Okay. If you want to do the vertical, you crop the sides. Okay. So, look, your picture is really, your hero is literally always at the center. Right. But, like, you know, being a director, like, framing doesn't always work. You want the framing to be the first quadrant or the last quadrant. You know, like, you yes. kind of want to mess around with it. So, when you're, when you're doing things like that, then you have to move the picture over for that particular aspect right. ratio. Uh, for the edit, but the flow of the edit, the timing of the edit, uh, the music, the color, uh, for the most part, that stays the same. Right. Interesting. I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I'm obviously used to vertical video now, looking at it on my phone, but I can't, it must, I don't know. I don't think I, my eye is not, wouldn't be trained to compose for vertical video. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Has it been a hard thing to, to think about that in some ways? Um. Uh, it was a little bit of a learning curve, you know, to be honest, like to figure out. And I mean, I think these cameras nowadays and technology helps a lot. So okay. like literally now you can flip the monitor and on set yeah, or like, you know, just turn the camera over and see what a vertical video looks like. Yeah. So I think like when we are composing a shot, 
uh, you know, the DP, you're like, okay, let's look at this frame looks good. Now, you know, just tilt the camera 90 degrees to just see what a vertical would look like as well. Mm -hmm. And you know, kind of get a sense of it. And then over time, you just start to your brain like connects the dots and sort of, you know, figures out um, the composition. And you know, like everything practice makes perfect. It's really uh, you, you got to keep doing it over and over. Sure. And uh, it becomes muscle memory. And have you noticed a difference in style in terms of the narrative of things, you know, things having to be shorter, like five seconds and stuff like that? Yeah. It's like now just like you're hitting the face right away. <laughs> like there's, you know, there's the buildup uh, is sort of gone. Or even if you're doing a buildup, uh, you know, I think there's for a specific version, you might have to either make another version where it's like a quick, uh, you know, sell mm -hmm. or, uh you know, I mean, they're six second videos, so that doesn't leave a lot of room for breathing. Right. Uh, so it's just really like the joke and the cell, you know, like call to action. So it's really like boom, boom. It's like a two punch. Wow. In six seconds. <laughs> In six seconds. So because that's really when a lot of times like on YouTube and stuff, you have pre-rolls that are, you know, 15 seconds, but then you're allowed to skip after a certain amount of time. Right. So if brands are advertising, they still need to sort of convey the idea or the messaging or their product within that, you know, time frame. So right. whether the uh, user chooses to skip or no, the message comes across. So so actually, that's an interesting point. Is that the is that the primary vehicle that you guys are gearing for is YouTube knowing that that's probably the most likely place that your ad will be seen compared to like yeah so we do know we do know where the ads will go so sure. the media buys are usually in place when uh, we're working on something right so we know that this would go on Hulu or this would go on YouTube uh, this would be on, uh, so what they call it is like connected TV. So it could, you know, pretty much be like now Disney does it or YouTube, sure. you know, uh, or like even, uh, streaming on, uh, your computer screen with, uh, on websites. Um, but, uh, we know the media buy, so we can sort of, you know, figure out like, how is this six second going to be different from the 30 second TV spot? Right. Uh, and, um, so we are able to conceive that idea and, uh, you know, a lot of times when you're shooting, like you are doing things that are quicker and then things that breathe a little bit, like in terms of take. Mm -hmm. So now we sort of mark them in terms of like quicker take, you know, more breathing. So when the editor sort of putting it together, uh, they know like if we go with this longer take, we might have to re-edit for the six second version. Yes. Okay. Oh, this is fascinating so, to me. Sorry, I'm very excited because obviously so much has changed and it's so interesting. And the other thing that's interesting is, uh, you know, obviously like YouTube or even Hulu and those things, those are much more targeted advertising in some ways, right? So they yeah. target a specific audience for what who they're trying to do. When you guys are doing a pitch, even as a director or whatever towards the agency, do you think about what you need to uh, how you would get that target? What would you need to add to your content to be more targeted towards that audience? Yeah, I mean, I, that all those conversations have become so relevant. Wow. You know, whether whether this is targeted towards you know certain race or like you know depending on uh, you know what who you're trying to sell, like you know that this beauty product might be great for you know people with like slightly you know 
darker skin tones or this might, you know, sunscreen might be good for, you know, people with like slightly lighter skins. And uh, then you sort of drill into the demographics, like, you know, what are, what is the general demographics? You can pull data, you know, like, oh, in this region, like this is going to be airing, not nationwide, just Northeast. Then you figure out what, you know, the demographic and, and then you go into like selecting your locations, right? Like you want to appear that this, you know, that they are not in a location which is alien to you. So you want to be in a location that seems very familiar. Mm -hmm. So you figure out like, okay, this demographic lives in, you know, sort of this kind of, uh, you know, uh, middle America, uh, you know, where like a ranch homes, you know, it's like slightly longer homes, like they're right. not many stairs. So we, then we start scouting for locations um, to match that as well. And uh, again, casting is really important. So, uh, you know, when you're casting, we try to, uh, which now has become great. And I really like it. You know, we are uh, sort of a mixed race family. Mm -hmm. um, my wife is Caucasian, I'm Indian. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think like that's become like the advertising, uh, you know, where they're like, oh, like you shouldn't be able to tell what race they are you know it should be sort of uh ambiguous, uh, <laughs> ambiguous. yeah ethnically ambiguous is a big term so really uh, <laughs> yeah yeah so you know you look at uh, ethnically ambiguous people or like match them in a way where it feels like a little more uh general right. um, and it's true it's true for urban areas you know in the country where you're seeing a lot of uh, you know mix uh, in races and people are sort of transcending borders and uh, sort of mixing cultures, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I guess part of that has always been part of the advertising agency. I mean, people still refer to the United Colors of Benetton as the the yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that was yeah, back yeah, in the eighties, yeah. right? So yeah, uh, so that that was a big thing. Like that was a big thing. Mm -hmm. But like if you looked at Macy's or something, like their advertising or catalog would be, you'd know exactly what they're targeting. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but now it's really like it's, I think everyone's a data point at this point, like in terms of advertising. So it's like, how many times have you clicked on a link on Instagram to make that buy? You know, what's mm -hmm. your age range? And uh, it's not as much as ethnicity. It's like, what's your age range? What's your spending power? You know, like how often frequently you shop? And I think you have a profile that is made for you. Uh, on all these social sites and uh, oh, yeah. know, advertisers, and advertisers, you know, basically is like, yep, I want this profile and I'm going to target to this profile. Yeah. Yeah. Trust me. My, my Instagram gives me a lot of fly fishing videos. <laughs> they know exactly oh, yeah, who yeah. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And YouTube does that. YouTube shorts, TikTok, they're all, you know, it's really, I mean, they have to make money and lots of it just because, you know, they're such, uh, big institutions right. now that uh, they have they've learned how to monetize it and they're going to keep doing it yeah i mean Nothing they ever i mean the internet has had you know for for the last several decades it's, it's become about advertising <laughs> right yeah. and it's yeah. taken over obviously so as, the, as a medium which is it's interesting i i find this all fascinating so okay so we covered we covered you know how the different formats have changed uh we've covered a little bit how how the content is is evolving and uh but what about the technology what about things that are a little bit different especially in the in the cg world what have you noticed that's that's changed in the in cg in the last uh few years um, I mean a lot of real-time rendering mm -hmm. uh, you're not waiting hours to render sure uh, with 
know, graphics. Uh, would have been a lot better if they weren't like using these graphics card to mine crypto. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the graphics card would be cheaper and would be available to a lot more people. Yeah. But uh, I think, uh, you know, real-time rendering, crypto, they all like came about, like AI, they've all come about like sort of at the same time. Sure. And, you know, that's really where we see like the bottleneck of, uh, you know, where there's a big need for graphics, you know, GPU rendering. I find it interesting you say that because, you know, I was, I, I was thinking about this, you know, we obviously like a couple of years ago, everyone was complaining about crypto, right? About how yeah. it's taken over and the demand for GPUs more specifically. Uh, and then Ethereum went to proof of stake uh, uh and then that sort of dropped GPUs. Yeah. But just as that happened, AI took <laughs> went on the other side of things. Yeah. Exactly. And now it's just impossible to get a good GPU uh, yeah. to do things, right? So, so, yeah, I think like real-time rendering, the, the technology I think is there. It's like 80% there. Um, I think once uh, things settle down and I think Apple is doing like with their silicon graphics, like they're trying sure. to like fuse it within the board. So you're not looking for, so I think once they optimize those things, uh, it will be great to be able to just, you know, visualize something and just have it render in another window while you're working on it. I, I am uh, all for it. I mean, I, I work, you know, I, I work for chaos and real time rendering yeah, is yeah. a big part of what I, I do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so we've been doing GPU rendering since 2008. And more yeah. recently, I've been doing a lot of things in Vantage with real-time ray tracing. And so to me, I am 100% about uh, the interactivity. As a creative person, yeah. right, if you think about real-time, uh, how has that helped your creative process in terms of uh, doing things in real-time? You're open to experimenting a lot more. Mm. So, you know, you were not like trying, for example, to take a sphere and it's supposed to be metal. And then you're not just like going between brass and chrome. You're mm -hmm. like, what if I throw marble on it? What would that look? And then instantly you can look at it and throw it out of your mental block that, okay, this does not work. Because you didn't have to on. wait 5, 10, 15 minutes. You didn't minutes. have to wait, yeah. yeah. And then you'd have to, you know, make that decision. You're like, yeah, I'm not going to waste my time like putting marble. I know it might not work. Let's try that as a last resort. But like here, you're just like, oh, let's try it out, see what, what it looks like. So I think it really opens up uh, a lot of doors right. uh, for us in terms of being able to play around. Uh, and again, like the computing power is really now not uh, as much of a barrier to work mm. where, you know, the past like you'd have to worry about like computing power and how long it would take to render and optimize and stuff like that. And I feel like a lot of new artists that are coming up too, like they're already growing up with beefy computers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they are, when they're starting out, like it's not Pentium 4, <laughs> I don't know what they were, but like you're like, oh, you're on a Xeon chip? That's right. amazing, I'm on Pentium. And it cost like, a million like, dollars. <laughs> exactly. Whereas these guys are on like, you know, 64 core machines at 15 yeah. years old. And, you know, they're like playing around with Cinema 40 and, you know, yeah. playing around V-Ray or, you know, uh, I'm not going to name competition, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, but essentially they're used to it. So they're not as, uh, uh, I would say like, uh, you know, uh, a conscious, like conscious of like time. Sure. Like they are just like, oh, this is play around. Let's figure it out. Whereas uh, I feel like the generation before that I would put myself in, like we were really into optimizing 
and really into uh, you know optimizing the lighting material like if we can put a fake you know reflection then you'd not want it to do like a real-time reflection yes. you know oh longer. you were yeah you were same time as me when we used to put like yeah. negative lights under tables to create shadows. exactly <laughs> exactly exactly and you were like baking stuff in and yeah. then you know you're, you're still in that well i mean it's a lot of cases when it's you're faster, working with caches and yeah yeah when you're working with uh with uh real-time solutions like uh, like unreal and stuff you still have to do a lot of those optimizations yeah, uh yeah. and that's also interesting like that's part of yeah anyway i'm not going to get into but, there, but that's the thing like i feel like unreal is at a stage where we were with uh you know maya or whatever you know like 15 20 years yep, ago 2006 and, uh, yeah unreal <laughs> is at that stage right now mm -hmm. and i feel like you know it took 15 20 years for my or cinema 40 with the renderers to try to you know like a lot of mental ray v-ray yep. you know now arnold like i think there are a lot of iterations and things got better and better but um i think for unreal to make that leap would be a lot faster yeah or or you can actually look like, at real-time ray tracing as a complete solution to this well, as exactly as well. yeah yeah so that's yeah. what i've been so, working on i've been working on vantage which is our real-time ray tracer so oh, real-time ray yeah. okay uh, but but uh, but it's also you know I don't want to <laughs> get into that part of it. But it, it's uh, it, it is interesting that this real time idea of interactivity and things of that nature are starting to come into play. Now, if you look back to about two thousand and you know fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, the world was like VR interactivity is yeah. going to be the thing. And it's sort of died down, and now people are saying, well, now Apple's got a new VR headset, and I was like, is is as a person that's creating creative, and I'm very honestly speaking, do you feel that VR is going to have another comeback due to like things like the Apple Vision, or do you think it's a little too late for people to really reconsider how VR is going to work in, in this area? I honestly, I don't know. You know, like I, I haven't tried the Vision Pro, right? But I feel like it's uh, the way it's position is more of like a dimensional computing mm -hmm. rather than a gimmick sure so it's pretty much like you're getting your computer interface in like three dimension and you're still working with a keyboard and stuff like that so it might replace the monitor right you know but it's uh so that's really i'm, I'm interested to see like how what the adoption rate is and also it all depends on the price point and you know, how easily it is available and, you know, how many people jump on to buy it. And for, uh, whereas a VR headset, although very, very cool, uh, I think they're still cumbersome to wear and walk around in and uh, they have their limitations, you know. I mean, it's great on a soundstage or like in a studio where you are able to not have obstruction. But in, you know, people living in real homes with toys on the floor, you know, with kids or yep. even like a side table. I mean, you're just stepping on stuff and it's, you know, I think the adoption process is a little slower for that. Um, but I've seen the great stuff come out of that too, um, you know. So I I really think like Vision Pro, the way approaching is more about spatial computing, as they're mm. saying, uh, rather than uh, a headset for like VR. Right. Right. I mean, there was yeah. obviously, you know, uh, uh, for, a, for a big, big push towards, you know, the the metaverse or whatever we want to call it in, in different forms, either through Facebook's interpretation or Meta's interpretation right. or, or Epic's interpretation. What are your thoughts about that whole process and, and where we are now? Sort of looking back at the, the hype cycle seems to have died down a little bit about what 
what metaverse is and how it affects what you guys do at Attaboy and, and where you guys are yeah. going. Yeah, I, don't know. I personally was not very invested in metaverse. It did give me a little bit of anxiety that if the world moves this way, like it's really like I'm a really per people person. Like I want to meet people. I right. you know want to like travel, like see. I'd rather be in a studio chatting with people rather than doing, uh, you know, like a Zoom uh, session. Uh, so. Yeah, I feel like it's good that the hypes die down mm -hmm. and uh, the way it should be. Like we are social like creatures, you know, uh, and I think as social creatures, there's a limitation to not being able to do an avatar. There's a place for it, but like I don't think in the real world uh, you can replace real world interaction. Sure. So gamifying metaverse makes sense where you're able to go to this like environment where you might not be able to go in real time. But like when you're, to me, when you're doing real work with real people, I don't think I want to see an avatar of Chris and not Chris, like, you know? Right. Whether it's two dimensional, three dimensional, doesn't really matter. Sure, sure. Well, okay, but I do want to go back to one other point you made. And very early, I'm sort of doing a callback. You were talking about, you know, when you were in architecture and you were practicing architecture, the amount of time it would take to see what you'd built and have it actually built was very long, right? And yeah. the opportunity to see interesting design very quickly is also interesting. So the, opp the opportunity to experience great spatial design in VR yeah. is big, right? It's almost like an infinite landscape of real estate that you can build these things. Uh, right. What do you? Th what are your thoughts about that landscape? Because I, I mean, personally, I thought it was like it's such a waste of all the horrible design that was happening in the metaverse a couple of years ago when they could have been really concentrating on beauty and nice spaces, right? Yeah, and I think like it's uh, every medium I feel needs a phase for maturity. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's really where VR is happening. Like there's a lot of really great industrial applications to exactly your point. Uh, you know, there are amazing places that are being created, uh, you know, our buildings before they're built, they're visualizing it in VR and, mm -hmm. you know, experiencing it. Uh, so that's definitely still happening. And I think it will happen more and more, uh, but in a more specialized way and not to replace uh, that's really kind of bringing me back was like, it's not going to replace our physical interaction. Mm. Um, I think it's just going to augment it to in a way where there are limitations in our physical interaction and VR will augment it. So if we are using it to enhance our experience, I'm all for something, but if it's using it to just make us lazy and not travel, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, I do miss that. So. Yeah, I, so I, I think that's really. Uh, yeah. I I do miss the smell and the touch and the feel. Sure. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. even though like you're creating in this like VR space, it's kind of like something's missing, and I I feel like it's the touch, the texture, and the tactile quality of it is what's missing. So it's you're you know you're not engaging all your senses. Right. You're en engaging too. And then that sort of feels incomplete as an experience. And I, that's, I think, been my biggest hurdle in really being able to enjoy it. Yeah. On it, uh, what's interesting, I, I see lighting, honestly, to be very important. Like, I, you know, 
the lighting in Iceland is different than it is in Mexico. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, but I also feel that uh, the headsets can't convey that that process, or even any TV. TVs can do yeah. it a little bit. There is an HDRness to to lighting in yeah, real light, the the yeah. in real life that I think is harder to achieve uh, through headsets. Uh, a natural feeling, you know. But I think there is that GPU. You feel like is it like processing that's stopping? No, it? I is think it's literally the brightness of things. The brightness, like you know, when you oh. go outside and it's you go outside in Mexico and Baja Mexico, and your eyes yeah, hurt because right. it's so bright. Yeah. That feel yeah. that that's a feeling you can't get from a VR. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. but it's kind of a cool feeling, even though it hurts. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the real world, right? Like that's right. really what. Uh, and in filmmaking, you explain that in terms of emotion. So you'd have sure. an actor, like even though you can't feel it, you'll show someone you connect with feeling yes, it. Yes, the actor will perform. Translate. Yes, yes. Yes, and that translates to you. Yes. And then, uh, so I feel like that that that's why filmmaking is such a successful medium. Right. Even though it's flat, uh, you know, I think like there's this uh, emotion transfer that happens instantly. Right. Uh, with, you know, VR and stuff, it's more about experiencing the space. And, in terms of VR, like experiences which engage all your senses. So, you know, like Disney or, you know, Disney World or whatever, where you have like jets being sprayed while you're sure. wearing a VR headset on a roller coaster, while that or like a, you know, blast of air comes through you when something flies. I feel like that's why it's more fulfilling and feels more real because at home when you put on a headset, that's missing. Right. Well, you're asking the viewer to do all the work for you as opposed to exactly. letting someone else That's, do the narration for yeah. you. Um, yeah. Well, so. uh, this is fascinating. Sorry, we got a little tangent with VR. But what, what is your feeling? What, what are the things that get you the most excited about your job? You know, you, you mentioned some of the things you're doing, but what are, what are the things you're like most looking forward to right now? Uh, I think what gets me excited is like it doesn't feel like a job like it just feels like a lifestyle it feels like what i do it's so integrated in my senses you know in my you know day in what i want to experience every day so it doesn't feel really like work and i think that's you know sort of what uh, helps and keeps me going however what's really exciting to me is like being able to use technology to further our storytelling or, you know, like tell stories faster, whether it's like faster, you know, rendering time to like do an animation or using AI to generate concepts super fast, uh, you know, or like whether it is like camera to your computer in an instant, you know, or like ha having the ability to capture, uh, you know, like 8K resolution files and like cropping into like a really tiny portion of it, you know, and then zooming out. So I think it's just like being able to sort of play with that technology stack uh, to tell stories is what really excites me. Nice. Interesting. And you guys, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts about some of these new tools like, like AI? I mean, people, do you feel these to be uh, beneficial to you to be able to get your store? Do you feel it to be a threat to your, your process? Uh, I don't see it as a threat. I know a lot of people find it boring because you're not creating stuff. You know, okay. uh, you're like, you know, you're writing 
out like what do you want and the computer is generating but that's still creating right you're still describing something that's it, <laughs> it is but it is but you don't have full creative control over it you know it's like okay. a lot of times like with people that are used to working in 3d like i think it's almost like you're a maker you're like you know using your uh hands and you know lighting source trying to get that exact sort of frame whereas now you're telling someone or computer to do it and be like no idiot doesn't look like this try again you know and like you're like ah oh, you're closer try it better so it's kind of like right now it feels like having your kid do your work <laughs> like a really, an intern right an intern and they're trying to like teach him to do better or get closer to your vision and then eventually they'll know exactly what you mean mm-hmm. so you're training it's a training program right now so mm-hmm. uh I mean, the process is boring. I wish there was like a better like user interface that made it like a little more fun and interactive to do rather than like typing out messages. Sure. But uh, essentially, it's going to learn way faster than we did. Yeah. And uh, I think it's going to change the game. How do you think, I mean, like think about your time at SCAD and, and how what it must be like to be a person at SCAD today and how they're learning these things. Oh, that's, it's just crazy. I mean, they have, SCAD now has like a, like a virtual production stage. Yeah, I know. That <laughs> kids get access. I'm like, what the fuck? Like we, you know, we had like the Sony DV camera that yeah. they, we had to check out. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, yeah, it you know, times are different. I think you just have to embrace it and, uh, you know, really sort of enjoy where this progress is going and hopefully it's not too disruptive to your process uh if you can adapt it early on um and i feel like being artists and uh you know having trans you know having i would say the journey from like architecture to like motion design like directing like having you know worked in so many different mediums uh i try to keep my mind open to be able to adapt to something that i'm not totally comfortable with it i think that challenge is also what makes it exciting every day to go to work uh that's why i like to work in advertising where short spurts like you know three you're on something for like four to six weeks and you're moving on to something else uh, as opposed to architecture or like film vfx where you're on a year you know like five shots for two years you know and like you're just generating smoke for the entire film right and you're a smoke cd and i think that would get boring for me and uh um it's like the little add in me you know like really like all right what's next what's next Ooh, well I'm it's kind of get back to your experiment thing right you want to experiment with a bunch of different things yeah and yeah, if it exactly. doesn't work and it's not, okay you'll have another one in one. weeks yeah exactly exactly <laughs> well we we'll try to make everything work we sure, try to sure and I think that's the you know ethos of the company is like when everyone you work with or everyone that works with you, like at the end of the job, you just want an attaboy. You know, you kind of want to uh, make sure like a job well done. There you go. That's a that, that's a perfect way to sum up where the, where the company name comes from. <laughs> well, congratulations and thank you so much for for being uh, part of the the podcast. It was great to hear your story. Uh, nice to see another. Uh, ex-architect uh, succeeding in the field of directing and creative. I know, what are the chances? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me.